and have returned one more time to worship you in all your truths, blessings, and providences. We ask one more time at the end of this day for you to grant us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. And we ask one more thing, for you to move your word from the page to our heart, to move your word to our heart as we move from rest and study into this world of of turmoil in creaturely hearts. We pray, Father, to help us not be overrun and overcome by the cancer diagnosis and the biases and prejudices, hostilities, minor and major, abuses, cheatings, woundings, and unfair decisions. That in the midst of our mission this week, to be your disciples, to be your representatives, to be your people of faith and of trust and beauty, that we keep the vision of a rolled stone, of discarded grave clothes, and of death being swallowed up ever before us by the witness of your Spirit in our hearts to these things. We ask this, Father, to be true for each of us this week. And it is the very thing in this moment that we pray for in the name of Jesus. Amen. We don't need uh, to be reminded, but maybe sometimes we do, because many of us know this firsthand, that words are an extremely powerful thing. The brother of Jesus The one called James, in a letter that he wrote to the church, tells us that the tongue is something that must be subdued because while it is the smallest of the members of the body, it is extremely powerful in its ability to wreak havoc on God's good creation, that words can get you into trouble very, very quickly. Reminded of a story where a man and his wife are having his wife, uh, his, uh, his boss and his and his boss's wife over for dinner one night. As uh, they're getting ready, they tell their eight-year-old boy, he was asked to set the table, which he did, except that he didn't leave any silverware next to the plate where his boss's wife would sit. His mom asked why he didn't set silverware for the boss's wife, and the little boy said that he didn't think she needed any. And why not, asked his mother. And the little boy replied, because dad says she eats like a horse. Towards the end of the third chapter of Colossians, Paul writes, whatever you do, whether it's in word or deed, whether in word or deed, you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul writes that whatever we say should be said in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, much in our world is said about words, and there's a lot of them out there, and many of them not worth reading, and there's that saying that words are cheap. We know that, that we would rather see a sermon than hear one, that faith without works is dead, and all of that. But Jesus also said that our words are powerful in that they illustrate what is in our heart. In Matthew chapter 12, in in, I think One of the most sobering teachings of Jesus for us today in this era that we live in where words just fly all over the place, Jesus says in verse 34 that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth also speaks. 
So I want us, uh, as we come to a close with Colossians, to consider this evening how we use our words. What kinds of words should a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth use? What kind of words should they not use? Where should their words steer a conversation that they're having uh, every day, basically, of our, our lives, but from day to day in these conversations with folks in this community? What language do disciples use during moments of frustration or moments of anger or moments of pain? The Christian faith and the Christian vocabulary, the words that we use to express our faith and to describe our faith and to explain our faith are connected. And that's the reason that God opens doors for us to speak about Him. That is not always in a setting like this where we find ourselves with a captive audience and time to speak at ease about the things that we believe to be true from God's Word about the Christ and about His Father. And what is the good of even having an opportunity if we don't even know what to say? Let me read the text one more time, beginning in verse 2. Paul tells the church in Colossae to devote yourselves to prayer. First time that word shows up. Being watchful and thankful. And pray, second time it shows up, for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray, third time, that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. In a text of five verses, Paul mentions prayer three times. And he mentions that our prayer should be for open doors, open doors, not just, you know, for visitation and making you friends and these kinds of things, but open doors in order to share the gospel, the words that lead people into a relationship with Christ and a changed life and life eternal and life abundant and life uh, to the fullest. In effect, he is instructing us that before we speak to men about God, we should speak to God about men. Paul asked the same thing of the church in other places. This is not just unique to, to, to Colossae. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. He writes to, to the church in Thessalonica, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. I, wa I wonder sometimes if we pray like this. We pray for uh, our missionaries, the people that we have sent into cities and into places around the world that many of us will never have the opportunity to go, let alone visit, in order to share the words that make a difference in our life in this community and in this place and in this time? Do, do we pray for our teachers and our shepherds and our ministers when it comes to speaking the words of, of the gospel? If, if Jesus has told us anything about the Holy Spirit, 
The Spirit is incredibly active on a daily basis, continually convicting people. John chapter 16, continually convicting people of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We do not come to believe the gospel on our own without the, 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 the promptings of the Spirit according to the teachings of Christ. Nor do we, and I'll speak personally and specifically about my own life, there is no one that I believe that I have ever led to Christ, whether in the United States, my own country, in the language that I speak from my heart, or even in the years that we spent in Brazil as missionaries, without the help of God's Spirit convicting them of truth, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We pray that it's God who opens the doors. And if it's God who opens the doors, then we have to speak to God about men first. So just about five prayer principles for open doors. The first one is to think about this, consecration. To consecrate something is, is not just to make it holy, but to give it a holy purpose, to, to give it a specific holy purpose. Notice Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. You know, Paul, there's all kinds of uh, descriptions of Paul based out of Scripture, and a lot of it is just uh, speculation at best. Some think that he was short, some think that he was not all that great looking, some, think, some believe and write about him having some kind of an eye uh, ailment or injury that, that prevented him from uh, a lot of times being in comfort because of the pain of it. But Paul, we know from Scripture, was an hombre. He, he, was, he was a man who knew what his purpose in life was, and knowing that purpose and embracing it and grasping it, there was nothing that was going to deter him from doing what it was that God had called him to do. And notice that Paul is not praying for God to open prison doors, he's in chains, but ministry doors. He is more concerned about being fruitful than he is about being free or comfortable or liberated. And that's not to say that he wanted to spend the rest of his life in jail. Obviously, he didn't. But he knew that as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, that he had a consecrated purpose in his life, and that was to share the gospel. How consecrated to this purpose are we? The gospel is, is free, but one of the truths about sharing it wherever you go is that it always costs someone something to share it. For Paul, it cost chains. But change could never bind his passion. What is it that binds ours? From his cell in the Flossenburg concentration camp during World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that the church is only the church when it exists for others. His point is that when the church exists only for itself, the mission to reach out for others takes a back seat. And it, it's wrong for the church to be filled with people who do not care if people who do not have an, an inkling, a clue as to why the gospel, why the cross, why the incarnation are saved. Paul was consecrated to this end and would speak and would reason and would persuade 
and would do it continually wherever he was, in spite of opposition, in spite of change, in spite of rejection. He said he would rather go to prison to preach the gospel than not preach the gospel at all. Our church will not be effective in outreach as long as comfort and cost are the overriding concerns. The gospel is free, but it always, it always costs someone to share it. How about communication? Verse 4. Pray that I may, may proclaim it. That is the gospel that changes everything. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. You, you know, just sort of reading that, doesn't it sound kind of funny? I mean, who would ever argue that Paul is less than brilliant? And not just brilliant as, as a thinker, but brilliant as a theologian. And yet, in all of his, 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 his brain power and his intelligence and his brilliance and his training and his experiences and his successes, he's asking for this church to pray that he can speak the gospel clearly. To speak it in a way that people could understand it. Have you, <laughs> have you ever considered how the gospel sometimes is heard by an outsider when we're using all of the insider code? You know what soteriology is? It's the reconciliation with God, in other words, the atonement. And that is possible when we repent or cleanse through the washing away of our sins in the water of baptism, whereupon we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, who sets us on a course of sanctification. Hey, what does that mean if you're an outsider and you don't know what those words mean? It's correct theology, but what does reconciliation with God and atonement and repent and cleanse through the washing away of our sins in the waters of baptism or sanctification mean to people who are not used to that kind of language? My friends, we have to present the gospel in the language of the people on the other side of the door that God has opened for such an opportunity. It has to be in our words. Churches have to think like missionaries. We have the same duty as any of our missionaries have to learn to speak the gospel in the words that can be understand, uh, understood by those who are listening. You know, from time to time, not so much anymore, especially maybe over the last uh, couple of years or so, but people from time to time over the last couple of decades have asked me which version, what's the best version of the Bible to read? And you know what my answer is? The one you can understand. I remember um, when I started at ACU in 1979, I was using an, an RSV, the Revised Standard Version. For those who went to ACU back in the 70s and 80s, it was the Harper Study Bible. Nobody uses that version much anymore. The language, a little bit difficult to understand. Now I use the NIV when I preach, the New American Standard when I teach, and at times, the New Century, the Phillips, the Living, the Message, and the English Standard Version. I use the version that is going to give the clearest, most accurate translation of the, of, of the original language, and you know why? So I can understand it, and you can understand it. What good is a Bible that you can't understand? What good is a gospel if you don't understand what it means for you? Paul wants the church to pray that when he preaches and speaks the words of the gospel, that it just makes sense. That it connects the dots to people who are wondering about all of those dots that are sort of haphazardly strewn along their lifetime. Some years ago, there was a, a commercial by Mercedes-Benz that I really appreciated. They advertised a new energy-absorbing car body that would make the car incredibly safe in an accident. And because it was so effective and because it was so 
um, it, it was such a life-saving device that the commercial concluded by saying that they did not patent the system because some things are too important not to share. The gospel is too important not to make it clear. We, we don't dumb down the gospel, but we lift up Christ in such a way that the cross and the resurrection and its connection to my heart and my soul and yours and everyone else's in the world, that it can be understood and it makes sense. So we're consecrated to that, that, that purpose. We understand the importance of communication and we pray to speak it clearly. A third one is anticipation. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, we make the most of every opportunity. It assumes, and Paul is assuming here, that if the church prays, that he can anticipate opportunities to share the gospel. Heard this story many years ago about a lady who wanted to learn first aid, so she took a couple of courses, passed everything. They, they taught her how to tie a tourniquet, set a broken bone, deal with shock, and how to keep people from fainting by putting their head between their knees. One day she told her friend about walking down the street and off on the side was this horrific crash. And there were bodies everywhere. Their blood was flowing. People were screaming. And her friend asked her, what did you do? And she said, I remembered my training. And I put my head between my knees so I wouldn't faint. <laughs> I think we're pretty good at taking care of ourselves. I think we're pretty good at taking care of ourselves. But we also need to reflect the teaching of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, you know what happens when you have your heart, in your heart, you set apart Christ, you sanctify Christ, you make Him special, you, you, you make Him holy in your life? You'll need to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, I, I don't know if I've ever heard those exact words that somebody, whether in Brazil or in Texas or California or Maryland or Kansas or wherever, has ever asked me, uh, would you please sit down with me over a cup of coffee at Starbucks? I'll buy if you'll tell me the hope that you have in your heart. Usually, the opportunities that are more along the lines of questions that go like this. How in the world am I ever going to survive this? Or what am I going to do? or I never thought that this would happen to me. We anticipate the open doors, the opportunities to share the words of our faith that bless the people who need an answer. Fourth, consideration. Verses 5 and 6, he says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always, not half-time, part-time, most of the time, but always full of grace, seasoned with salt. I believe very few people, if any, are ever argued into the faith these days. I, I believe that the message of grace has to be delivered graciously. I believe, and I think that the data backs this up, that most people are turned off by the messenger more so than ever by the message. We forget our task is not to be a prosecuting attorney or a judge, but ours is to be the witness. We tell people about what Jesus means to us. You know, I, I, I don't even know how many graduate hours in theology I have. 
I don't consider myself, even though for, for three and a half decades I've been professionally, academically studying the Word of God, I don't consider myself to be a scholar. But I guarantee you that I'm the greatest scholar in this room in one thing and one thing only. And that's what Christ has done to me. And in that regard, you are too the greatest scholar in this room. And then lastly, information. In verse 6, he ends by saying, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That, that doesn't mean that you have to have all of the degrees and, and the letters after your name. What it means is sometimes we need to be reminded that the message has a content. That the message has a content that is truthful and is long-standing and is impervious to, to arguments and contradictions against it. And, and I, I've talked with a lot of people who get the wrong message about the gospel. They say, you know, I'm a good person, I've never intentionally ever hurt anyone, and so I'm right with God. Or, my grandfather was an elder, my dad was a preacher, my mother was a Sunday school teacher, I'm okay. I think most people are surprised that the Bible teaches you need more than a good life to be saved eternally. And I believe that everyone, everyone in our church family should be fluent in the language of their conversion and what it means for them personally to walk with the Christ every day. We should be able to talk about the difference that Jesus makes in our life and how we came to know the Christ and how we came to commit our life to the Christ and how the Christ has, has committed His resources and His blessings and His presence to us every day of our life and the difference that that makes. And not only just live it, but to be able to talk about it. And you don't have to be, you don't have to be eloquent and you don't even have to be articulate. You just have to be honest. And there's nothing more poignant and there's nothing that, that, that captures the punch like the truth of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and the difference it's made in your life. Especially to people who see that difference in your life and it's everything that they wanted out of this life. To know that they're not alone in the universe. That there are resources beyond themselves to be able to deal with the day-to-day -day and the same old, same old, same old. To, to know that there is a hope that one day, all of the evil in the universe is going to be taken care of and put away and rolled up. That there is, that there is a, a, a just God who is going to put every single act of, of wickedness and evil that has ever been perpetrated on God's good creation is going to be put to the right. And not just in all of the universe and in all of nature and in all of the world, but even in human life. And that there is a way for us, there is a way for us to know, to have our hearts, not just to know, but to have our hearts overflowing with the knowledge that we are the children of God and every implication that that brings into the forefront of our vision for all of life. That we are loved, that we're never alone, that we are provided for, that there are promises that you take to the bank, that there is a purpose and a strength and a, a guiltlessness and a forgiveness and a cleansing of the conscience and sleep at night 
and a way to grow into a, a, a a, a, a person, a human being that you were always supposed to be, by God's help, you're not just tossed out of the boat hoping that you swim, but that God has invested His resources and His very self, His Spirit, God the Spirit in you, to develop you and to help you and to sanctify you into the human being you were always supposed to be. And to change the way that you treat people and to change the way that you treat resources and the way that you treat the environment and the way that, that you treat your words and you treat the truth and all of these things. To be able to share that, the way that the gospel, the way that God's word, the way that the Christ, the Spirit, has affected you in this life is a powerful, powerful witness to the power of the gospel. Maybe you've never given your life to the Christ. I'm here to tell you that it is the most phenomenal life that a human being could ever know. Most human beings deal with the material world. They deal with what they can see. They deal with the senses. Anything beyond that is a mystery. It's a little bit scary. We back off. We tend not to want to talk about the things that we can't prove, especially in Western culture. And if we can't prove it, we don't want to talk about it or deal with it. And yet we see, even in our own culture, in this postmodern world that we live in, that there is a desire for some sense that there's more to life than just what it is that we can conjure up between our two ears, in our, in our head, in our brain. And it is the truth of the gospel that that's right. That there is more than what we can see that's visible to us. There is... What, the, what Paul calls the heavenlies, there is this invisible world in which at times there's this very thin line between the visible and the invisible world, but it is real because God is real. And God is not in some deist, hybrid deist fashion, you know, setting the laws of the, of, of the universe into, uh, in, into motion and then backing off and disappearing and waiting you know, for some time when he might return again. Who knows when that's going to be? But he's here with us every day, still sovereign over his world, helping us to understand the truth that we have created the world. The world is thus, thus have we made it. But there are answers out there, sometimes answers that are beyond us, but to all of the answers, everything gets back to the fact that reality, that there is a God in heaven who created everything and who is holy but who is also loving. And he is a God who is patient, and he is a God who speaks to us the truth about who we are, and the truth about who he is, and the truth of what is needed for us and for he to be able to come together again. His pleasure, his will, his graciousness, his gift for it to happen. But we have to desire it. And we have to be honest about ourselves. And maybe tonight, for the first time in a long time, you understand that you're not everything that you think you're cracked up to be. And that regardless of how hard you might try in some areas of your life, there are going to be some areas of your life that you're just, you just seem to struggle and struggle and struggle, and it seems like there is so much rope at the end of that struggle that you're never going to get to the end of it. Or maybe you're, you're floundering in the guilt of a really horrendous decision that you've made. Or the way that you've treated someone. Or maybe there are just so many facts that are accumulating in front of you that it looks like it's just hopeless, hopeless, hopeless 
if there isn't a God. We want to share with you tonight, if that describes you, what we believe the presence of God, the truth of God, and His gospel mean for human beings. And if that describes you tonight, some of our spiritual leaders and shepherds are going to be down here at the front, or it may be that you just need the prayers of our church to, uh, to strengthen your walk with Christ and to help you resolve, to galvanize your spirit and your courage to do the life the way that Paul and others have instructed us to live it. Whatever the case is, come down to the front and talk to these shepherds as we praise God together. Let's stand and sing. Bring Christ you.